0: If you want to go ahead and grab a seat as you do that, you can turn to Joshua chapter 5. We're going to finish out, round out Joshua chapter 5, and then pick up Joshua chapter 6 this morning. Um, Last week... uh, Justin took us through Joshua chapters 5, 1 through 12, uh, where we saw that the people of Israel are now, uh, they're in uh, or right next to Jericho, right? They have crossed over the Jordan River. They've gone from the wilderness, now entering into the land that God has promised to them. Uh, and And oddly enough, as soon as they crossed from the wilderness and and into the place of of where their mind would go towards conquest and the battle that God has called for them, God almost calls a timeout and and issues the command for them to renew the covenant by undergoing circumcision for all of the males of the people of Israel uh, who have been in the wilderness for 40 years, which is going to take time to heal, right? And then they also take time to observe the Passover, which is the reminder of how God had miraculously saved them out of Egypt. Um, And so uh, where we would typically think is they've crossed over the Jordan River, and they're ready to to start getting after the task of conquering the land that God is giving them. Instead, God says, "Hold up, right? Right worship and a right relationship with Him supersedes anything else that they're about to do." And now, in Joshua chapters five, uh, starting in verses thirteen through the end of the chapter, and then going into chapter six, is maybe it's a, it's another one of those. It's, today is another Sunday school. Sunday sermon, right? This this is a passage of scripture that you have doubtless, like if if you have been to a vacation Bible school, if you've been to a Wednesday night kids church program, if you like, this is one of those passages of scripture that you have probably heard before. Like how many of you ever heard about the walls of Jericho? Right, so so one of the challenges, and we've talked about this in in other familiar passages. One of the challenges that we carry with us when we come to a familiar passage is, "I've I've heard this before." Okay, moving on. Let's let's move to the next section. And yet, uh, I hope as we come to Joshua five thirteen through fifteen, and then six through uh, one through twenty seven, uh, even though it's a familiar passage, it continues to be God's living word that is breathing out, and it's and it continues to be useful for correction, instruction, rebuke, all of those things from Second Timothy chapter three verse sixteen. Um, and so, what we're going to look at this morning is, and we're bringing it back to bear with Joshua chapter 2. If you remember, Joshua had sent spies into the land. They had gone into Jericho, and Rahab, the prostitute in Jericho, had preserved them, protected them, and they issued a promise that she would be spared when the army of Israel comes back to conquer Jericho. So we're going to pull that. That's that's kind of the frame of Joshua 2. We've had a little bit of uh, uh, stuff happening in between Joshua 2, and now we're picking back up at Jericho. So we're going to read the whole thing, so buckle up, bear with me. It's on screen for you, or if you have a copy of God's word, you can follow there, starting in Joshua chapter 5 and in verse 13. It says, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, every one straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, "'You shall not shout or make your voice heard, "'neither shall any word go out of your mouth "'until the day I tell you to shout. "'Then you shall shout.' "'So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, "'going about at once, and they came into the camp "'and spent the night in the camp. "'Then Joshua rose early in the morning, "'and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. "'And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets "'of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, "'walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually.' And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted it all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring her out from there, the woman and all who belong to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent out to spy Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua. And his fame was in all the land. Breather. Okay. So they're getting ready to head to Jericho. Chapter 5, starting in verse 13. And Joshua encounters a man with a drawn sword. Now just in your brain, imagine you're in enemy territory. You can imagine whatever time period you want. Uh, You're in enemy territory, and in front of you, you see somebody who is not one of your people with a drawn weapon. How high of alert are you on at that point? I would imagine you're, you're pretty high alert, pretty like, what is going on? And what's incredible about Joshua is Joshua, the first time we ever see Joshua in Exodus chapter 17, he's commanding the army of Israel. Like, he's leading the people of Israel into battle. So he's not just, he's not just a diplomat that's out there without his secret service guys and going, oh no, now what do we do? Right, He's the guy who is, who's actively led the people of Israel into battle, sees somebody with a drawn sword, and instead of just going immediately into fighting, he says, hey, wait a minute, whose side are you on? Now, keep in mind, they're in enemy territory. You would imagine, that's a, that's a silly question. Like, whose side are you on? Are you on our side or are you on the other side? Uh, probably everybody that Joshua would expect to encounter would be not on our side, Right? And yet he asks, whose side are you on? And and the guy says, "Uh, I'm not on either side. Which is kind of a a shocking response, right? Like, whose side are you on? I have a drawn sword. I'm I'm just standing out here with a drawn sword. I'm not on anybody's side. But he gives an, an issue. He says, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. And basically, and here I am. It's the second time that this type of thing has happened. The first one is is in Numbers chapter 22. If you remember in Numbers chapter 22, another really famous Sunday school lesson. Everybody heard of Balaam and his donkey? You know that one, talking donkey? Like, that's a hard one to miss in Scripture, right? If you remember, what did the donkey see? What did Balaam's donkey see in the road? An angel of the Lord, and what was the angel of the Lord doing? Standing with drawn sword. Right, but the difference is, is the first time that we see this happen with Balaam, what did Balaam not do? Balaam didn't see; he had no idea. He was clueless. It was his donkey that saw, right? And and Balaam three times encounters this angel of the Lord, and three times Balaam sees nothing, and three times his donkey saves his bacon. Right, the first time he turns whew, wide out into the field. It's like, I'm not doing this. Second time, he like, he's in a narrower way and he like crushes Balaam's leg to get out of the way. And, and in both cases, do you remember what Balaam's response was to his donkey? Beat the snot out of that thing. Why aren't you doing what I'm telling you to do? And then the third time, the donkey just like, he has nowhere to go and lays down. Like, we're not doing this. And Balaam gets irate. And finally, the donkey talks and says, Hey, dummy. Can't move. Right? Saved your life three times. And, and Balaam finally sees like, oh, like there's an angel of the Lord with drawn sword and the donkey to save my life. A little bit different situation. Joshua doesn't like keep going and going like, oh, I don't care about you. We're just going to go around. Like the, immediately this, we, we, we see something that's unique between Joshua and Balaam just in their condition to see the messenger of the Lord. But Joshua sees him and his immediate response as soon as this individual introduces himself, is to fall in worship. As soon as Joshua hears, I'm the, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord and I am here, Joshua's immediate thing, think about this, the number one head of the people of Israel. Top dog, guy making all of the decisions, giving all of the instructions, in charge of leading all of the people of Israel. There's no one ahead of him on the hierarchy chart. His immediate response is to fall on his face in worship. The number one guy, the, army, the leader of the armies of Israel, unequivocally surrenders to the Lord and says, what do you want from me? What is it that you want from me? What does my Lord say to his servant?" And the response initially is a little bit perplexing. The commander of the army of the Lord says to Joshua, take your shoes off, you're on holy ground. Have you heard that before? Moses, right? When Moses encounters the Lord's presence in the burning bush, the first thing he hears is, take off your shoes, where you're standing is holy ground, and then follows the instructions of what he was to do for the people of Israel. His immediate response Worship, what do you want us to do? Came across, uh, it's, it's a paraphrase of, of something that Hudson Taylor, he was a British missionary to China from 1832. He, he lived 1832 to 1905. Um, Hudson Taylor told a group of people in the China Inland Missions, he says, we have three ways to do God's work. Three potential options. Okay. Three potential ways that we can do God's work or do the ministry that God has called us to. The first one is to make the best plans that we can and to carry them out in our own ability. In other words, we, we, we could look at the situation and say, this is all of the beans that I have. Based off of all of the beans that I have, this is what we're going to do and do it to the best of our ability. You might go, that, that, seems, that seems like pretty good stewardship. Just to take stock of what we have and to say, to the best of my ability, this is what I have and so this is what we will do. The second one is is kind of like a kissing cousin to the first one, which is to make the carefully laid out plans and to determine to do them. And then at the end of that process, we say, God, would you please bless the plans that I've made? Right, which is a little bit different than number one, because number one is just like I just take stock of all that I have, and I do it to the best of my ability. Number two is I take the stock of all that I have, I do it to the best of my ability, but I also make sure to sprinkle it with the prayer request that God would bless it and do the right thing through it. And then the third option, which is really uncomfortable, Hudson Taylor lays out, is we begin with God asking him what his plans are and then purposing to do them. Not doing our self-evaluation first of who I am and what I bring to the table, but first and foremost asking God, what are you doing and what does it take for me to do that? One of the immediate questions that might rise to our our face on that is because most of us would say that the Lord has not appeared to us through a messenger with drawn sword. So say, like, if, if God were to appear to me in that way, it would be very clear for me what I ought to do. Like, this is this is going to make it really clear what God's plans are for my life because, hey, guy with a drawn pistol just showed up and said, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. Listen up. Okay, whatever you want. Most of you probably have not had that experience. And if you have had that experience, anyway. We, we would all look and go, have you really had that experience? Anyway. So then how would we, it would be an important place to stop right here and just say, well, how, okay, if we say we should begin with God asking him what his plans are and what we should do with him, how would we even begin to know what God's plans are for us individually or what they are for us corporately? Right, because we might line up ten people along the wall and say, what's God's plan for this church or what's God's plan for you as an individual? And most of us would probably be like, if pressed, we do go, I don't, I don't know. What is God's plan for my life? And in some variations of that answer uh, throughout time, they say, well, God's purpose for your life is for you to, to, to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And then when you have a deficit in one of those things, you go, well, maybe it's just to be wealthy and wise. Well, maybe it's just not, well, maybe it's just, maybe God intends that for other people because I'm not healthy, wealthy, or wise. Right? Well, we could try to summarize and we go, well, that falls short because my experience says that's not really happening. So what is it? What is God's plan for his people? Or how would we know? What his plans are, what he wants his people to do. What does, how do I know what he wants me to do? And one of the challenges before I even address that is you would say, like we would say the Bible is God's authoritative word for our life and our practice. Like what, what God tells us in his word gives us the outline of how we are to live our lives. But then the challenge would be the Bible doesn't tell me in chapter and verse who I ought to date. It doesn't tell me what major I ought to major in in college. So how do I, like, what is God asking me to do if it's not laid out in a chapter and verse? I would invite us to step back and say, what is the Bible absolutely clear on who God is and what he wants for people to follow him in faith-filled obedience? The Bible is absolutely clear that you and I and every person on this planet are, 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 are falling short of his glory. Like, we have sinned and pursued a different direction than following him, right? That That's clear from Genesis chapter 3 throughout the rest of Scripture, is that God has designed us to know him and to walk with him, but we don't do that. There's not a single person, Romans tells us, there's not a single person who seeks after the Lord. There's not a single person, one of us, who looks automatically to do what God has called us to do. Or there's not a single one of us, not just what God has called us to do, there's not a single one of us who lives a life that is pleasing to him in and of ourselves. But the Bible is also clear that God has, from the beginning, from Genesis 3 all throughout, that God is making a way for people to know him and to walk with him in a right and restored relationship. You see that at the beginning when God provides a provision of, of clothing for Adam and Eve, and then he provides the provision of the law to the people in the Old Testament. Why does he give those? So that they might know how to live and to walk with him in a right way. And this is all funneling us towards in the New Testament, Jesus, the eternal son of God who takes on flesh to dwell among us. Not just to dwell among us so that we just go, wow, God's a really cool person. But so that he might go in obedience to the cross, dying for our sin that has separated us from God. And then not only did he die for our sin, but then on the third day he rose in victory, conquering sin and death forever. Well, that all sounds really good. So, so phase one, in knowing what God wants for my life, he wants me to have a right relationship with him that only comes through faith in Jesus. So then you still go, but that still doesn't tell me who to date and what major to take in college. It doesn't tell me what to eat for dinner. It doesn't tell me all of these other things. So then what? And we say, then what then is laid out for those who place faith in Jesus? What does God desire for our lives after faith in Jesus? The number one thing that we see throughout Scripture is that God desires hearts that are rightly geared toward him. He desires faith-filled response to him. Now, this might seem like a cop-out, but if we have right responses to him according to his word, then those other decisions begin to filter relatively easily. That, that's not to say that there won't be times in your life where you go, there's job A and there's job B and I just don't know what to do. My encouragement on job A and job B would be which one of those opportunities allows you with the best conscience that you have available, able to do the things that God calls you to do to be in faith-filled response to Him. If job A pays more but it, in, it impedes you and your life in Christ, job B is better even though the benefits might be better in job A. right? The the, the major that says that this is the better career path, but it impedes my walk with Jesus, might not be the best major for your life. Or it requires you to alter your priorities in life first. You go, well, who should I date? The Bible actually is kind of clear on that one. It may not give you the name, but it gives you the qualities of the person that you ought to date. A person who first and foremost is what? Walking with the Lord. So if you go, like, who should I date? Well, first of all, look around and say, who is faithfully serving the Lord? Which is completely different than what the world would tell us on who to date. The world would start with, who are you attracted to? You you ought to be, you, you will be, you ought to be attracted to your spouse. But if that's the number one thing, guess what? Your spouse's looks will change. Or their personality at some point will grate on you. They squeeze the toothpaste from the wrong spot. They hang the toilet paper in the wrong direction. They fold their socks the wrong way. They put a laundry detergent in the thing rather than in the the, the thing where it goes. <laughs> like, that's just small things. Like, But first and foremost, do they have a heart that is gripped for the Lord? And can you serve the Lord alongside of them? Like, that funnels the list down. And then beyond that, I guess what I'm saying to you, if you hear me, sometimes we think of God's will as a laser, laser light of focus. That God's will is only found in this small one direction, and if I step outside of that, I'm going to get hit with a bolt of lightning. What I would alter, uh, offer to you instead is if we are, have our eyes fixed on faith in Christ and walking in a right response to Him, then it's not always a laser beam approach, but there is clear boundaries of what is and is not in His will. So identifying, is this honoring to the Lord in faith-filled response? Is this not honoring to the Lord in faith-filled response? There's a broader field of questions, and at times that will feel like it is laser-focused because there's only one right choice based off of that. But we could spend our whole life trying to find a needle in a haystack of what God's will is for my life when he is first and foremost, he's just calling you to live faithfully in response to him wherever he has placed you. And then beyond that, he's going to give you more and more opportunities to know him and to walk with him. But in this case, so in Joshua chapter 5, this is, so I would say this is descriptive rather than prescriptive. And what I mean by that is not everybody, when they're seeking God's direction for their life, is going to be faced with somebody who shows up and says, with drawn sword, I am the commander of the army of the Lord, do this. But every believer in Christ will, in encountering God's word, will have confirmation or direction provided by the eternal word of God that is providing the right boundaries for how we ought to live and walk in response to Jesus. You still with me? And what comes of this, so you notice that Joshua's first response, he says, what does my Lord say to his servant? The right response to God's word, when He's speaking through His word by His Spirit, is what do you have to say? I'm ready to do it. In First Samuel chapter three, we see a similar response from another one of uh, the people that God uses in the history of the people of Israel. Uh, Samuel is uh, is is a young boy that has been given and dedicated to the Lord. His parents uh, uh, prayed for him and then allowed him to be raised in the temple by the priest Eli. And uh, as Samuel was growing up in the temple, or in the tabernacle, in the presence of the Lord, uh, he continues in First in Samuel 3, I invite you to go and, and read the whole passage or the first couple of chapters of First Samuel, you'll catch the context in full. Uh, but Samuel at night continues to hear a, Lord, uh, a, a, a voice calling his name Samuel, and he keeps assuming that it's Eli, the old priest, and he keeps running in, right, and saying, hey, Eli, here I am, what do you need? Do you need a cup of water? Like, what do we need? And Eli keeps like sounding like, I'm not calling you. Go back to sleep, right? Uh, I, as a parent, I can relate to this. No, I didn't, I didn't, oh, I didn't want to know if you wanted a drink of water. No, I didn't know, want to know if you needed to use the bathroom again. I just want you to go to bed, right? You've probably been there. But finally, Eli says, I think something, uh, I think the Lord is actually speaking to Samuel. So he says, so this is how, uh, you're to respond. And so in, in 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 9, uh, Samuel hears again the voice and then in in verse 9 and then in verse 10 Samuel's response is speak for your servant hears or in other words speak because I'm listening one of the great starting points for you and for me even in determining what it is that God wants for us is are are we listening are we seeking him are we, are we coming to God's word with an expectation that he continues to speak to his people and provide direction? And not only do we come with that expectation, but then do we come with the, the, the second part of that resolution, that if he does convict us of the direction we ought to go, are we listening in the sense that we will do it? Also, what's fascinating about Joshua is his, it says that he immediately, he immediately worships, and then the Lord begins to provide direction. Verses two and following. In verse one, it gives the context like there's nobody going in or out of Jericho. It is sealed up tight. Uh, so it, throughout most of history, this is what would lead to a siege, siege work, right? Like, of just like, we're going to hang out here outside for months and wait for this city to finally capitulate. But instead of that, he says, I, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. And then the instructions, you, six days in a row, right? You march around the city one time for six days. Every day, every morning you get up, you walk around one time, you do this for six days. On the seventh day, you're going to walk around seven times, blow the trumpets and shout and the walls are going to come down. And if we just stop right there, how much faith does it take for Joshua to go, sounds like the right plan. I like where your head's at, angel of the Lord. That's exactly what I was thinking we should do. Probably not so much. And keep in mind, uh, Joshua is a guy who has fought in battle. This isn't his first rodeo. It's probably his second, but it's not his first. From a human face value perspective, does this make sense? Walk around the city for a week, and the last day... Really up your efforts in walking and then blow the trumpets and shout and the city will be given into your hands. I mean, I've not been a part of a whole lot of sieges, uh, but I've been to a lot of football games where people yell a lot and I, I've not seen stadiums fall down. Right? You just, just imagine, like college football has started, professional football starts today. Just imagine, like this great group of people walking around a stadium uh, so, their team 's going to play there next sunday we 're going to walk around once every day, and on the seventh day right before the game time goes we 're going to walk around seven times we 're all going to shout really big, and our team 's going to win. Let alone the stadium just fall on its face or like if you saw a, a crowd or a group of fans do this at a sporting event, you like, you guys are you got some weird traditions that seems really exhausting how much How much faith. To walk around a city for a week trusting that this is the way that God is going to deliver it into their hands. And verse six says, So Joshua, the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, and then lays out, do exactly that. Like the idea of so is like, so so Joshua's like, okay, immediate obedience, immediate worship, immediate obedience. Calls the priests, communicates God's direction. And then you think, well, man, maybe one of those people would say to Joshua, like, are you sure this is the right direction? But then in verse 8 it says, And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns, before the Lord went forward blowing the horns, marching. Verse 10 it says that they're not going to speak. For the first six days as they walk around, they're not speaking, they're not shouting, they're not doing anything. The priests are just blowing the horns continually, but there's no talking, there's no yelling, there's no taunting. They're just walking in silence around the city of Jericho. Now again, I've not been in battle, not been in a, in a siege situation, but I can imagine that if an enemy army is walking around the city, there's a, there's a fair bit of taunting that happens. Uh, how many of you have seen VeggieTales? right? They're throwing slushies at them. And yet, there's no response back in the other direction. My senior year of, high, or senior year of college, I was at the University of Utah, and, and for a couple of years, we had a really good football team. My senior year, the football team wasn't that great, uh, but s- some friends and I resolved like, we were going to drive to Laramie, Wyoming, and go to the Utah, University of Utah versus University of Wyoming football game. And I don't know if you know this, but, this, like, Wyoming doesn't, like, hit the radar as the greatest football f- uh, program in history. But it is a super hostile environment. Like, they would, like, throw batteries on the field. Like, uh, the game that I went to, like, Wyoming fans come over and start fights, and there's fist fights going on in, like, the, the fan sections. Like, it's, it's a fun environment. And by fun, I mean you just keep your head down, enjoy the game, and go home. Right? Uh, so I was a senior. I was involved in the campus ministry. We had gone with uh, several several people from the same campus ministry and we had, I think they were, they were maybe sophomores in college. Long story short, we got whipped. We're going home beaten. In the great wisdom of how we decided to do things, we parked uh, on Greek Row next to all the fraternity houses. Uh, and if you don't know this, by the end of a football game, most of those guys are well sauced <laughs> And uh so we're walking through and, and and we have our Utah shirts on, our Utah hats on, and and man, they're just they're just taunting. And uh I was like, I just wanna go home. Like we got beat. I don't don't wanna get beat up in Wyoming because I just saw what they did in the stands, like I just wanna go home. I had these two guys that were with me that decided it'd be a really good time to taunt Wyoming fans back in response. So they start yelling at them right, and like, and like trying to, p- like, just, just being dumb, just because they're frustrated, we lost, they're like, we have a long drive home, and they're just frustrated, and one of the guys goes, well, Zane, you have our back, right, and I said, if you don't start it, I have your back, all right if you start it, you're on your own, I'm out of here, I'm not doing this, but like, if you keep your mouth shut, and they just, like, and something goes, like, then we'll probably have a different outcome of this, but if you start it, okay, they went, okay, we're done, Like, as soon as they realized that all of us older guys that were with him were like, we're not doing this? Right, okay, we'll just be quiet and walk. Okay, but that's a football game, right? And and just the the back and forth, right, that, that would happen. And yet the people of Israel commanded, don't say a word, don't shout, don't say anything until the seventh day or until I command you. Now just imagine six days, getting up in the morning, walking a lap around the city and coming back. Six days with no tangible or visible result from what you're doing. God says, get up, walk around the city every day. Every day you do it, you do it in silence, and every day for six days is the same as the day before. No visible, tangible evidence that this city is going to fall. With the immediate context in your rearview mirror, that as soon as the priest stepped into the Jordan River... The water was cut off. Jordan River is immediate. Now here at Jericho, a week into this with no visible, tangible evidence that it's all of a sudden just going to... Like, there's no cracks in the foundation that just showed up from day one to day two. The people up on the wall are still doing whatever they were doing on day one, two, three, four, and five. And even, in fact, on day seven, when you begin to walk around and and you go seven times... Six times around, there is still no visible, tangible evidence that this is the right thing to do. In terms of, like, this is the way that God will provide for it. And then, on the seventh day, on the seventh lap, Joshua issues, right before this, he issues the the, the instructions, like the whole city is given to the Lord, it's to be destroyed. And we've talked about this a little bit, I'm not going to go way into it again, of how we reconciled the destruction of an entire city. Uh, we talked about that in Joshua chapter 1. Uh, so if you, if you missed that, you can go uh, and, and re-listen to it and, and go fill in the blanks of, of why God would do this. Ultimately tied to the worship of people, God's after the heart. He's not concerned about just wiping out a specific group of people at, uh, apart from their worship, but because of their worship. But then he says they're, they're, all that they have is to be devoted to destruction and, 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 and be careful, keep an eye on yourself, keep guard on yourself. On verse, verse 18, keep yourselves, as like to guard yourselves from taking what's not yours. But then they, they, they as immediately after he gives the command, the trumpets blow and the people shout and the wall goes down. And the people go up and they destroy the city just as God told them that they should do just as God had told them that they would do what's one of the things that sticks out in this though is that uh maybe as a child when we would teach this lesson or when we learned this lesson uh maybe it's because we were uncomfortable with it or maybe it's just because this it's the way that we thought it would it happened is how many of you learned that like it was like or maybe that you just carried the thought with you that the city of Jericho was was destroyed or totally ruined when the walls fell like that was the moment where battle's over and it actually says that the walls were flat but then the people went in and laid the city to destruction after that so God provided the means for the city to fall but he still issued the command for the people to go in which they did and they also, Joshua issues the command of, of sparing Rahab and her family just as they had promised her they would, verses 22 and following. Remember that she had tied a, a a scarlet cord in her window and it was to gather all the people from her father's household in there. And anyone that was in that room, in that part of the wall, would be spared. What's incredible about this is that in the in the heat of everything, all things being laid waste, they do exactly what they promised to Rahab. They set her and all of her family aside, and they are saved alive. So much so that it says in in verse 25 that she's lived in Israel to this day. She's still alive. Now, that does not mean she's perpetually still alive in Israel today. What it means is at the time of the writing of the book of Joshua, guess who's still alive? Rahab. Uh, You can go and talk to Rahab and ask her, what happened when the Israelites walked around the city walls? What happened when your family was spared? What happened with all of this? And maybe the most important verses in this chapter, uh, right after the entire city is being laid waste to, but in verse 25 it says, But Rahab. And then it goes on, The prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. In the midst of a a city, in the, the place where God is calling his people to conquer, in the Old Testament, establishing the nation of Israel, In a geographical place, there's a family who is saved, and why are they saved? It's not because of their inherent value to the people of Israel. It's because she exercised faith and God saved her. I want you to see how this carries over into the New Testament. Because I think sometimes we can come into the New Testament and think... Maybe if we grew up in church or we grew up around Jesus enough um, that we were just kind of grandfathered into his people. But 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9, it it begins with maybe an equally troublesome idea to us as as does the conquest of the land of Canaan in the Old Testament. Where we catch Paul in the middle of, of, of of an argument, but he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And there might be part of that that makes us deeply uncomfortable, that there are people that God says will not inherit the kingdom of God. That if... Jesus returns today, or if they die today, what they stand to face is an eternity that is separated from the kingdom of God. But then I want you to notice verse 11, because verse 11 is really important for us to understand in this. He says, and such were some of you. Who is he writing to? He's writing to people who have placed their faith in Jesus, have experienced salvation in Christ, and he's laying out for them. There are people, based off of their, their sinful activity, they are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And, and you go, wow, they're just cemented in that position. They could never get out of that position. But then in verse 11 he says, oh yeah, some of you were in that very same situation. I would argue scripturally that all of us were in a place where we did not stand to inherit the kingdom of God by ourselves. There There is nothing that you did by being born in the United States of America or in a family that went to church or maybe near to church or that by coming to church, there is nothing in that that made you an inheritance or like giving you a share in the kingdom of God. Right? Quite the opposite. All of us stand to inherit separation from God for all of eternity. And yet because of his faith and his goodness to us, just, just like his goodness towards Rahab and her family, in a sea of people who are not inheriting the kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament, they're saved on the basis of what? Trusting God's activity. And notice how he says, How you came from this part, in not inheriting the kingdom of God, to inheriting the kingdom of God. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He doesn't say hey, you were made clean by your great church attendance. You were made you were made you were you were sanctified through your stellar generosity through financial giving to the church. You were justified through your volunteer hours that you spent at the soup kitchen. You were washed through being better than your neighbor because he's a really horrible person. You were sanctified because you weren't like those other people who were making all those other really bad choices. At least you tried hard. Right? It doesn't say that. What does it say? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. Like, Jesus did the work. And all you did was trust him. Entered in by faith that that what he did on the cross for you is something that you could never have done for yourself. And so, in Jesus... We went from death to life, if our hope is in Him. So the question ultimately comes out of this is, what am I hoping in? Am I hoping in what I bring to the table? Am I hoping in my activity and my efforts? Am I hoping in, in, in the family that I was born to? Am I hoping in the proximity that I have to other people who believe in Jesus? Am I hoping in something other than Jesus? Because ultimately, like you might look better than your neighbor on the outside. But inwardly, you're just as separated if you have not entered in through faith in Jesus. That's the only way that any of us come into a right relationship with God who created us to know him and to walk with him. But he catches, by grace, he has made a wide open door for you to walk through. So you could walk away and go like, well, he, all he said is that nobody would ever be good enough to enter the kingdom of God. And that's absolutely true unless... But this second part is true, equally true. Nobody, not a single person in this room is good enough on their own efforts, their own merits to enter the kingdom of God, except by faith in Jesus. And maybe you've heard it said, and I think it's it's a really good picture for this, the, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. It doesn't matter if you were born into a functional family or a dysfunctional family. It doesn't matter whether you're born rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you were, you, you, It doesn't matter what you were born with or what you bring to the cross. The ground is level. The same requirement for each and every person is the same. Faith in Jesus. Some people don't get off the hook because they have more money in their savings account. Some people don't get off the hook because they've done more good things than other, good, than other people. Some people don't get put on the hook because they're worse than other people. We're all on the hook, and the only way off the hook is through faith in Jesus. And then the second part of that question, though, is if he is indeed our hope, what is our right response to him when he speaks to us? Are we postured towards him saying, speak, and we will do it? And in the making of all of our plans, are we just heaping up our plans and then praying a sprinkling of God's blessing over the top? Or are we saying, Lord, what do you want? And we'll do that individually, corporately. Is that what marks us, Lord? What are you doing? We're your servant. Speak.